Welcome to another installment of the Good Life Revival Podcast. I'm your old pal, Sam Sycamore, coming to you on a cool evening, just a few days before the fall equinox, here in my off-grid cabin among the redwoods and tan oaks of Santa Cruz County, California. The crickets won't be quite as loud behind me as they were last time, because uh, I'm sitting indoors this evening. It's a bit colder this week than it was last week, and so... Uh, the dog boy and I, who you can probably hear panting behind me, uh, he and I are cozying up and radiating body heat back and forth for each other's benefits. Uh, harvest season is in full effect here, and uh, uh, although in the end I, I didn't grow much of a vegetable garden this year, mostly because I've been working uh, for an organic farm that provides me with all the vegetables I could ever ask for, um, but, uh, nonetheless, now is the time to begin harvesting and trimming my very favorite flowers in the whole wide world. I'm talking, of course, about cannabis, and I am so grateful to finally be living in a place where I'm not treated like a dangerous criminal because I love this particular flower so much. Cultivating my first six plants over this season has been a major learning experience, for sure, and I've discovered the hard way that cannabis is kind of its own thing in the realm of horticulture, and a lot of what I thought I knew about farming and gardening doesn't exactly carry over to cannabis. Still, despite all my mistakes along the way, I'm, I'm pretty sure these plants will yield way more than a year's supply for my own personal consumption. So hopefully I'll end up with a decent amount to share with friends or uh, to experiment with in the kitchen. All I know for sure is it's going to be a lot of work trimming these suckers. And with the tan oaks all around me just beginning to drop all their duds, uh, it looks like acorn season is right around the corner. And I expect that to be my full-time job for the month of October as I batten down the hatches here for the rainy season that's on the way. This week on the show, I am revisiting last week's topic of climate change grief. How to feel about it, how to think about it, how to react. Um, I'll address some feedback I've received, uh, and I'll also touch on some related pieces of media that are relevant to this topic. But before we get there, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who continues to support my work on Patreon at patreon.com slash goodliferevival. Patreon, if you're not familiar, is a crowdfunding platform, kind of like Kickstarter or GoFundMe, um, but it's designed specifically for serial creators like myself who are creating new things on a regular basis. This time around, I need to offer special thanks to Ryan and Craig, two very sweet individuals who pitched in since last week. Uh, thank you both so much for investing in my work. It really means a lot to me. If you, dear listener, get some value out of my work and you're able to translate that value into a few dollars, I hope you will consider joining the few, the proud, the mighty patrons who make this podcast possible. This show is 100% listener-funded, and though it is my full-time pursuit, it does not earn me a full-time income. And that has become all too apparent in my non-podcasting daily life, 
where I'm currently tossing every extra dollar I have and then some <laughs> into my ratty old truck for a seemingly endless string of repairs, some of which I have thankfully been able to handle myself uh, and others uh, which I've had to hire out to professionals. Um, so, moment of vulnerability here. I could really use your financial help at this particular moment in time. If you've been following along for a while and maybe you've considered pitching in before, but never gotten around to it, no big deal, you know, but uh, now would be an especially good time to follow through. So that hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, I won't have to bear too much credit card debt for too long before I can pay my way back to zero. <laughs> Being poor ain't all that romantic, folks, but uh, I'd take this arrangement over financial stability in a nine to five cubicle situation every single time. So anyway, one more time, uh, if you dig my work and you want to learn more about how to help me keep making it, please visit patreon.com slash goodliferevival. I really don't want to get another part-time job, you guys. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, if you're feeling like you want to help out, but money isn't in the picture for you, I totally get it. <laughs> but uh, what you could do is take a moment right now to rate and review the show on whatever podcast app you're currently listening to this through. I always feel silly asking for this, but it really, truly does make a difference. You might also consider talking about the podcast on social media, if that's something that you partake in, uh, because word of mouth is how this thing spreads. But even if you don't do any of those things, I just would ask for thank you for being here and hearing me out. Now, let's get on with our main topic. First, a quote from Sacred Gardening by Stephen Elliott Martin. It's from Chapter 9, A Vision of Our Co-Creative Future. He says, When I travel, I don't feel at home until I settle in for a couple days and walk the land. At some point, I find a quiet, natural place to do my offerings and journey with the earth. When we are one, the earth shows me what we need to know. She gives me visions of the past, of how the land could be. She shows me what the blockages are, preventing her from becoming her highest self. She sometimes shows me how to heal the people living on her and what she needs from them. I also sometimes see how and what to grow and where and what to build. Mostly, I am unable to manifest what she needs, but I do what's in front of me. I do what I can, where I can, and I store all the deep communings and instructions away, like love notes you never forget. The following visions about our future are not rigid thoughts coming from myself or her, but gleaned from roles of insight that manifest at the crest of our interface. There are hundreds of options contained within each cresting moment. In our conversation with the earth, we can discover what possibilities there are and be enabled to move forward into them. To me, these visions are not imaginings, 
but realities that already exist, which I am remembering into this time. In this age of cynicism, vision is rare. Even my inner critic loves to poke holes. But visions come from a place outside the realm of reason. They are not blueprints. Visions are the footprints of living guides that we can track to help us move forward in the right direction. End quote. First off, I just want to thank everyone who was brave enough to come with me and entertain some really difficult ideas last time around. I heard from one listener in particular who confessed that they initially avoided listening to last week's episode because they already carry a pretty high level of anxiety around the topic and didn't want to risk further inflammation. And I totally understand that. And I'm glad to hear that you chose to confront it and work to come to terms with the feelings that you have about climate change. That was really the, the true purpose, you know, what I, was, what I was trying to achieve with last week's episode. And I'm afraid I may have jumbled it up a bit or, I don't know, maybe I just wasn't as clear as I would have liked to have been because I'm still forming my own thoughts on this in real time, kind of. <laughs> but what, I, what I'm really trying to encourage in myself and in my listeners uh, is to be honest with ourselves about our emotional state and not to repress or, or cling to ever-diminishing hopes and pipe dreams when reality suggests that perhaps we should be shifting our goals and our strategies and our expectations. Because the most surefire way to drive yourself insane is to try to argue with reality. I shared that last episode about climate change grief on a permaculture subreddit forum, and uh, most of the feedback I received there struck me as sort of knee-jerk emotional reactions to the suggestion that perhaps we ought to let go of hope and learn how to grieve properly. Many people seem to believe that letting go of hope is synonymous with giving up. And I don't think that's the case. What I am expressly not advocating is to take no action. You know, I'm, I'm arguing that we need radical, unconventional, decentralized action now. In addition to all of those absolutely worthwhile fights that are taking place at high levels of social and political organization. What I'm trying to say, in part, is that climate change is not a thing that is maybe, probably, coming in the future sometime. It's happening now. And whether or not you choose to cling to some semblance of hope, there are tangible things that we can and should be doing to brace ourselves for the storms that we know are headed our way. And I think we need to dream bigger and aim higher than the sorts of quote-unquote solutions that the status quo has to offer. We tend to think of climate change as though it will be this singular moment or event in the future. 
like that silly movie, The Day After Tomorrow. I had to look that up because I couldn't remember what it was called. <laughs> but as far as I could tell from like the previews and stuff, there's just like this crazy super storm one day that like floods the coastline and kills all these people and like makes the government and the economy topple. But that's not how climate works, right? <laughs> it's not just going to be like one thing that happens one day. Uh, maybe that stems from a fundamental misunderstanding of the concepts of climate versus weather, right? Uh, weather is what it's like outside today, whereas climate is the statistical average of what it's like on days like this in part of the world based on, you know, years or decades of data. According to that data, Climate change is happening right now. It's been happening for a while now. <laughs> and it's all too apparent in places like my current residence in California, where the one-two punch of climate disruption paired with poor land management is leading to more frequent and more powerful wildfires and a significantly longer wildfire season each year. If these trends continue, and we only have reason to believe that they will, then if you're a California resident, then you need to educate yourself about wildfires and do some basic preparation. Like when you need to evacuate your home in a matter of minutes, do you have all your most important stuff? You know, IDs, passports, a list of emergency contacts, that isn't your cell phone? <laughs> Do you have that stuff readily available to just grab and go? Uh, have you thought about where you will go and how you'll get there? What if the route that you planned to take is inaccessible? Do you have a plan B? What if you have to remain in a smoke-filled place indefinitely, like in the Bay Area last fall? where the air quality was equivalent to smoking like a pack of cigarettes a day, uh, even though the wildfires were burning hundreds of miles away. Do you have masks to deal with that sort of stuff? Do you have a fire extinguisher? Do you know how to use a fire extinguisher? Do you know how to use an axe if you need to enter a burning building in an extreme emergency? As a California resident, you need to take on the responsibility of being fire literate, which in addition to you know the basic preparedness stuff that I, I just brought up, it also means that you need to emotionally come to terms with the fact that climate change is impacting your life right now. I wanted to record this episode earlier in the day. But for the last couple of weeks, there have been chainsaws buzzing all around me all day long out here in the mountains of Santa Cruz County as folks clear out as much fuel wood as possible in the Redwood understory, you know, kind of bracing ourselves for the driest part of the year before the rains return later in the fall. Jojo, do you really have to trim your toenails while I'm recording this? Uh, if you could only see the look he just gave me. All right, man, do what you need to do. <laughs> anyway, I, I think this particular land management situation of uh, dealing with fires in California offers a good analogy for our responses to climate change as a whole. 
you know, whether we believe it's best to invest our energy in systemic change or whether we ought to be more focused on what some describe as a lifeboat strategy. So here in the remaining remnant coastal redwood forests, it's been explained to me by arborists that after this land was clear-cut in the last century, it has mainly been tended on a crisis basis, which is to say that when there is a crisis, <laughs> then folks come in and manage. Uh, there are lots of complicated reasons why this is so, which mostly boil down to a lack of resources and a lack of understanding and a lack of a goal with definable metrics that is ultimately aligned with the vitality of the ecosystem. Um, so we pretty much sum it all up by saying the problem, as with most things around us, boils down to capitalism and colonialism. <laughs> Big surprise there, right? Uh, in, uh, in Kat Anderson's incredible book, Tending the Wild, she describes how indigenous peoples of California would traditionally burn the understory here every three to five years in order to clear out all of the fuel wood and allow understory trees and shrubs like the tan oak to flourish. These peoples understand that their relatively minor disturbance with small, frequent, intentional burns actually replenishes the system as a whole and enables a larger diversity of species to thrive. They also understood that the consequences of not stewarding the land in this way meant that they would be hit with less frequent but far more disastrous wildfires which they believe to be a spiritual punishment for neglecting the needs of the land that they reside upon. Those same uncontrollable wildfires that the indigenous peoples viewed as punishment from God are now a routine occurrence on our landscape due to our egregious mismanagement of this place and of the earth as a whole. What needs to happen is a complete systemic overhaul of how we manage this forest, how we interact with it, and how we reside within it. But, you know, you can't just burn the understory every three years when there are permanent residences built into every hillside. And you're not just going to convince people to give up their homes here and, and relocate or kick them out and seize the land for radical conservation purposes. You know, you're not just going to magically change the fact that people are already living here in such a way that is just incongruous with the needs of the land. Permanent residences don't make sense in a place that needs to burn every few years. We cannot make systemic changes that would adequately address this problem. But, given the current circumstances, given the way things are, <laughs> we can take basic measures to ensure a higher level of safety immediately surrounding our dwellings, right? If nothing else, I, I might not have the means to steward the thousands of acres that surround me, but certainly I can take responsibility for the few acres that are basically under my jurisdiction here. Maybe, probably, I can't 
save this place, whatever that would even mean. But <laughs> there are very pertinent and accessible actions that I can take to mitigate the worst kinds of damage in my immediate surroundings. I can pick up a chainsaw and clear out the fuel wood and at least see to it that when the next super fire hits this region, I might be able to buy myself enough time to evacuate before the flames reach my home. The more abstract situation with climate change is the same story, really. The only systemic changes that might adequately address the problem seem to require radically altering our socio-political, economic, agricultural, <laughs> industrial paradigm overnight. But when we accept that this is unlikely to happen, and that climate change is something that is now inserting itself into our daily lives, then we can at least begin the direct action of bracing ourselves and our communities for the things that we know we will have to deal with sooner or later, in addition to pushing for social change and advocating for political change. And just like the example with fire preparedness, I don't really believe that the things we can do at the individual and community level will truly save us or solve the problem, right? Because, again, I don't believe that there's any saving or solving any of this. But what we can do might very well buy us the time that we need to determine our next move, if nothing else. And, again, as I stressed in the last episode... The things you can do to prepare today will improve your life today, not just in some, you know, imaginary shit-hits-the-fan scenario. Because, again, if you live in California, wildfires are something that you are going to observe and you might very well have to contend with. And, and when things go sour for you personally, locally, I hope that you will at least have thought things through far enough to have some kind of planned course of action to get through it or get out of it. If your region is prone to hurricanes or earthquakes or floods or tornadoes or droughts or extreme freezing, whatever it is where you live, you can reasonably predict that, that these things will become more intense, more unpredictable, and more frequent in the years and decades to come. It's already happening. So you need to brace yourself, period. It's, it's really just a no-brainer. And to avoid taking basic preparedness measures under these circumstances is equivalent to closing your eyes and sticking your fingers in your ears and going la 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 every time you hear a weather forecast. This is part of what I mean when I talk about moving beyond hope of, of some kind of miracle fix and towards acceptance of the reality that we face. I have no hope that my country or my state of California will miraculously get its shit together and radically reform the way it interacts with this land because... What reason would I have to expect that? <laughs> when, historically, has, has anything like that ever happened? 
So I'm taking steps to brace myself for what I know is coming. This is a reasonable form of coping with and addressing the reality of climate change. And part of this coping process, like I keep saying, must involve addressing our emotional reactions to what is unfolding. The most common criticism I received for the last episode of the podcast was a dismissal of this idea that we should allow ourselves to grieve over what has been and what will be lost. I, I find this really sad. I, I think this is a huge oversight in the scope of the work that needs to be done. The Australian philosopher Glenn Albrecht coined the term solastalgia to describe the pain experienced when, when you recognize that the place where you live, that you love, is under immediate assault. This is a messy, complicated feeling that we need to confront. Regardless of how active you are socially, politically, within your community, or as an individual, we all need to continuously take a good, hard look at the sheer tragedy of it all and work to process it and figure out how to cope with it. Denying it, I think, does us all a serious spiritual disservice. Acknowledging the pain imbues our work with that much more urgency. I've spent a lot of time traveling and wandering on a shoestring budget in my adult life. And I've spent a lot of time out on landscapes that over time I've come to understand as damaged and wounded in different ways. And I felt acutely aware of, of the pain in those places even before I had any kind of, of vocabulary to describe it or, or, or any sort of understanding of what it could be. Landscapes and ecosystems have something like an overall mood, I believe, that you can tune into if you practice quieting yourself enough to hear it. I've sat in poisoned and starved and chronically disturbed places and listen to what the land has to say. And while it's not exactly something that I can convey very well in words, it hurts. And I think what hurts most about it for me is that in some of these places where I've sat, the disposition of the land is something like that of uh, of like a rescue puppy that couldn't possibly make sense of, of how badly it's been abused by its previous owner. But you know about that abuse. And yet it's, it's still so eager to offer you love and affection, despite all the evidence that's been given to the contrary, uh, you know, saying that, that it should not trust you. Here in the Redwoods, until about 100 years ago, these hills and these trees had only ever known careful and intentional human cultivation for the last several millennia. Comparable, I think, to the cows and sheep and pigs of the European colonizers. And then suddenly, in the blink of an eye, those colonizers cut down all the trees and killed all the predators 
and blew up all the hills with dynamite and dried up all the creeks and streams and poisoned the ones that they didn't dry up. These tiny remnants of woods that still stand exist in a sort of shocked state, like a person mere moments after they've just experienced a traumatic car accident where they're maybe just beginning to mentally process the extent of the bodily trauma that's been inflicted upon them. And yet, this land still calls out to me like a child who's lost her beloved dog and and fears maybe it's abandoned her and, and yet she refuses to go home until it's found. To witness the pain and the open wounds and to feel the love pouring through all the same. It's fucking heartbreaking, frankly. And in most cases, there really truly isn't a goddamn thing I can do about it except just sit with that feeling. In some cases, I've felt like what the land needs is not even a responsible steward so much as a, a, a compassionate hospice caregiver to offer peace and comfort as it inevitably withers away. This is the grief that we need to allow ourselves to feel and to process. It's all around us. I, I mean, it's on, it's on all of the land and all of the landscapes and ecosystems that surround us. The whole world knows this grief. You can't know how precious life is until you lose a close friend or family member. By the same token, I don't think you can understand how precious an ecosystem is until you've witnessed it being destroyed and come to terms with the fact that you can't do anything about it. In the book Radical Joy for Hard Times, Trevi Johnson tells us that, quote, Joanna Macy has proposed several reasons why people avoid admitting to sadness and despair about the state of their world. Some are afraid that their feelings will be interpreted as negativity by their friends, who will then themselves fall prey to it. Others worry that getting emotional about the decline of nature shows lack in a faith of God, who they believe has a plan for all things, or even that it's unpatriotic, since it counters the treasured American archetype of the optimistic can-do individual who can hack through any problem a wild, untamed place confronts him with. Still other people are under the impression that it's not really the state of the natural world they're upset about, but part of their own psyche. In one of her essays, Macy describes a session with her psychiatrist who, after listening to her describe her anxiety about poverty, nuclear proliferation, environmental pollution, um, suggested that her concern was not really about those things at all, but was merely an outward projection of suppressed feelings about her childhood. Once she had uncovered and resolved that old trauma, the therapist assured her, she would cease to care so much about issues over which she had no control. End quote. What that quote tells us, I think, is that 
our conventional means of dealing with the pain of loss, they don't really know how to account for grief over a dying planet. It is without precedent. We need to be honest with ourselves about what we're feeling, why we're feeling it, and what we might reasonably do to address those feelings. For Trebi and the organization, also called Radical Joy for Hard Times, the most directly accessible and necessary work that we need to do at this particular moment in history is just to be with those damaged and wounded places all around us. We have to allow ourselves to feel their grief and our own grief uh, about them, you know, and and learn to cope with it again, regardless of whatever other actions we might take. You can mourn the pollution of the beaches in Santa Cruz, to take a local example. Uh, And you can also volunteer to clean up those same beaches. You know, those things are not mutually exclusive. You can can allow yourself to feel sadness over the thing while you are actively working to try to make it better. One of the more interesting responses I got to the last episode of the podcast um, was from a commenter who argued that people need big-picture transcendent myths to rally behind in order to spur action. They offered the specific example of the Green New Deal, um, this this sort of large-scale, top-down legislative approach to invigorating action at all levels. And on the face of it, I can't reasonably argue against such a thing. I mean, if we are to, to assume that it would make it through Congress without turning into a bloated, weakened, nonsensical, you know, shoot yourself in the foot kind of mess, uh, as what tends to happen with these sorts of things, if it even gets to be talked about at all. Uh, Thank you, Mitch McConnell. Anyway, (laughs) it would be a step in the right direction within the context of this social paradigm and would help to make things better here, now, even if it doesn't adequately address the severity and the magnitude and the urgency of the situation in front of us. I agree that we need big call-to-action myths to rally behind, but I don't really think that things like the Green New Deal are myths that are worth rallying behind because I don't think it's in our best interest to rally behind myths of salvation via neoliberal capitalism We need to get more creative than that and think beyond what we've been conditioned to believe is normal or acceptable. The Green New Deal asks us to continue to buy into the belief that growth at all cost capitalism is somehow compatible with a finite planet. And I believe that the 20th century and what we've seen in the 21st century have pretty clearly demonstrated to us that this is not the case. If we could do capitalism in such a way that didn't lead to the collapse of all global resources, then 
maybe it's just me, but I think we probably would have jumped on that by now. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to destroy the planet for money. Uh, not particularly. It, it's just that when the profit motive is the most important thing, then a lot of humans, as it turns out, have no trouble looking the other way as the planet is destroyed on their behalf. That's not a bug. That's a feature of capitalism. To suggest that we address a problem like this, if you ask me, is to suggest that we call capitalism and perhaps civilization itself into question. I personally believe that we need to abandon capitalism and probably dismantle civilization as we know it in order to adequately address the magnitude of the problems we face. Because I don't think we can expect the most destructive human-made forces the world has ever seen to miraculously transform into forces of altruistic benevolence overnight. Why is it that global corporations like Nestle get to pump billions of gallons of water out of regional water sources for free and then sell it back to us in toxic plastic bottles so ubiquitous that they will come to define this time in history and the geological record of Earth. Why does Nestle get to do that? Because capitalism, that's why. <laughs> but that is a topic unto itself that is a bit beyond the scope of my monologue today. I don't think myths like the Green New Deal go far enough because they don't consider the possibility that what's needed is a new paradigm altogether. The world as a whole isn't prepared to consider that just yet, but I believe that climate change will spur a bevy of radical, unconventional action as necessity dictates, and it won't always resemble capitalism, and sometimes it will work better. In her Camille stories, Donna Haraway asks us to consider a near future in which growing numbers of humans take it upon themselves, communally, to reduce the total human population over several generations in order to reduce the overall impact of humans on the planet. And uh, each new person born into this culture, which is known as the children of compost, uh, each child is paired with a non-human symbiont threatened by human degradation of the land and is charged with stewarding and coexisting with this species for their entire lives and, and across many generations as their heirs take over their work. Here's how she describes it. Quote, Only a portion of the earthwide, astonishing, and infectious action for well-being came from intentional migratory communities like Camille's. Drawing from long histories of creative resistance and generative living in even the worst circumstances, people everywhere found themselves profoundly tired of waiting for external, never materializing solutions to local and systemic problems. Both large and small individuals, organizations, and communities joined with each other and with migrant communities like Camille's to reshape Terran life for an epic that could follow the deadly discontinuities of the Anthropocene, Capitolocene, and Plantationocene. 
In system-changing, simultaneous waves and pulses, diverse indigenous peoples and all sorts of other laboring women, men, and children who had long been subjected to devastating conditions of extraction and production in their lands, waters, homes, and travels, innovated and strengthened coalitions to recraft conditions of living and dying to enable flourishing in the present and in times to come. These eruptions of healing energy and activism were ignited by love of earth and its human and non-human beings and by rage at the rate and scope of extinctions, exterminations, genocides, and immiserations in enforced patterns of multi-species living and dying that threatened ongoingness for everybody. Love and rage contained the germs of partial healing, even in the face of onrushing destruction. End quote. The story's protagonist, Camille, is one of the first such children born into this world. And they are paired with the monarch butterflies of Western, North, and Central California, uh, America, rather. Um, Camille migrates with them across their annual routes and uh, interacts with all the communities of humans and other living creatures that she encounters along the way. Camille becomes intimately connected with the waterways and the species of milkweed that feed the monarchs and eventually comes to partner with indigenous, resi indigenous residents of Mexico who practice traditional life ways that are spiritually connected to the monarch. Across five generations of Camille's, the human becomes more deeply entangled in the land while the human population overall is ethically yet drastically reduced to a number that might better allow the planet as a whole to flourish. This, I think, is the kind of creative myth that is worth rallying behind. It boldly proclaims that because top-down solutions have failed to materialize, it is time for us to begin self-organizing and seeking new ways of being. Radically different life ways that perhaps scarcely resemble anything that's come before. Not a stubborn clinging to the status quo or a return to a previous era, so much as an acceptance of all that has come before and all that is currently unfolding right in front of us. It's important to maintain the historical perspective that Civilization's eight to 10,000 year run is really truly a blink of the eye compared with the two to 300,000 year history of Homo sapiens as a whole and, and perhaps millions of years of the Homo genus that preceded our direct ancestors. There is no good reason to conclude that this is the best of all possible worlds when the facts seem to suggest pretty clearly that our pre-civilized ancestors and our non-civilized peers who work less for what they need and socialize as much as possible are often healthier, happier, and more spiritually fulfilled than even the most conventionally successful domesticated humans among us. The land beckons to us to reclaim our role as conscientious stewards 
who can move through ecosystems as harmlessly as a frog or a deer or a wolf or a mayfly. And you know what? Maybe it's out of reach for most of us here and now. But I believe that this is the kind of mythology that's worth integrating and passing on to future generations so they can take our ideas and run with them in novel directions that we can never imagine. What feels impossible to us today could be an inevitable reality for the generations who come after us. At the start of this monologue of mine, I mentioned a listener who expressed reluctance to confront this topic out of fear and anxiety. That's perfectly reasonable, and, and you're justified in feeling that way. But if you see the writings on the wall and are prepared to read them clearly and internalize their message, how will you then choose to respond? Will you wallow in your fear of the unknown? Or will you take your life into your own hands, take direct responsibility for your continued survival, and begin bracing yourself and your community for what looms on the horizon? You don't get to choose the problems that you encounter in life, but you always get to decide how to feel about them. I believe that you are strong enough to bear the pain, because we all are, because the land has taught me so. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Good Life Revival Podcast. For notes and links related to this episode, including a bibliography of all the books I referenced today, you can visit thegoodliferevival.com slash podcast slash 69. One more time, if you dig my work and you want to keep hearing from me as often as possible, I really hope you will consider becoming a subscriber at any level over on Patreon at patreon.com slash goodliferevival. If you can imagine that the monologue you just heard was a speech that I delivered in an old-timey town square sort of situation, then Patreon is one of the hats that I would pass around through the crowd, where folks who liked what they heard could toss a few bucks in. The other hat, which is reserved for one-time contributions rather than a monthly pledge, that can be found at paypal.me slash goodliferevival. Until next time, this is your friend Sam Sycamore, reminding all of you in the Northern Hemisphere that now is probably your last chance to soak up as much vitamin D as possible before the summer comes to an end. Are you ready to step out? The Good Life Revival podcast is made possible by listeners like you. You can pledge your support for the show at patreon.com slash goodliferevival or offer a one-time financial contribution at paypal.me slash goodliferevival. For more stories, perspectives, and knowledge encountered on the path back to nature, visit thegoodliferevival.com. And thank you for being here.